I said to him, are there answers to all of this? And he said, the answer is in the story and the story is being told. And I said, but there is so much pain. And she answered plainly, pain will happen. Then I said, will I ever find meaning? And they said, you will find meaning where you give meaning. The answer is in the story and the story isn't finished. Good morning, my name is Mark. It's great to be with you. Uh, For whatever reason you're here, I'm glad that we can be here together. I I had to wake up and show up. I don't know if you had to, but you're here, we're here. That poem was one of the first poems uh, by Padre Gautuma in his collection, The Readings from the Book of Exile. I'll end our time with one of the last poems from the same collection. As a church family, like you saw in that little bumper video, we've been going through this series that we're calling The Summer in the Psalms. And really, we've been learning and probably more apt to say praying through the book of Psalms. Otuma's poems are fitting here because the Psalms are actually a collection of ancient Hebrew poems and songs and prayers over a bunch of years in history. As such, there are many different authors. If you've looked at your notes page, you probably have already seen where this morning is going to go. David is one of the authors. He's known as a poet and a harp player. Many of these poems or songs were actually written for Israel's actual choir. But the book of Psalms as we now have it, or the way that we know it, is not a hymn book. Sometime after the exile of Babylon, these songs and these poems were rearranged with a specific purpose in mind. So without getting too deep into the history and the infrastructure of the book of Psalms, I do think it would be remiss of us to not acknowledge that the people who compiled this book had in mind the waiting of somebody, the waiting of the Messiah, the waiting of what they said and they called the messianic kingdom. We would say Jesus and the kingdom of God, which has come, is coming, and will come. Let's pray. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Just, just as it is in heaven here on earth. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the glory, the power, forever and ever. Amen. Like I said this morning, we're gonna pray through, perhaps listen along the way, maybe learn a little bit along the way. Psalm 51. And the question that I've been asking myself, probably for the past couple months, and particularly this morning as I was hoping to share something meaningful with all of you, was this. How do you pray when you don't know how to pray? How do you pray when you don't have words to pray? And if you're anything like me, or maybe you've grown up in the church or someone has told you, well, this is what prayer is, and I think that's probably the question we should ask, what is prayer? You've heard this. Prayer is simply talking to God. Prayer is simply talking to God. Well, I certainly think that there's something maybe helpful or important about spontaneous prayer, interceding for other people, petitioning for other people or for ourselves. What if prayer is more than just talking to God? One pastor contends that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to, but to be properly formed, to be properly formed. And so if prayer is not this letter to Santa Claus, but a practice of spiritual formation, 
Perhaps we can lean on the Psalms to teach us or guide us as we learn to pray. We can trust the Psalms. But if you're anything like me, your next skeptical question would be, well, why the Psalms? Why do we trust the Psalms? Besides the interesting composition that we briefly talked about, what is it about the Psalms that somehow has some magic power, some special authorities, the power to properly form us in prayer? Why the Psalms? The Psalms was and is the primary Jewish prayer book. And so it would follow that it was Jesus's primary prayer book. Throughout his entire life, that would mean that Jesus prayed the Psalms. If we're, playing, if we're paying close enough attention, we'll actually see that on the cross, Jesus prayed the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And now check this out. In Acts 2, which is something that we've talked a little bit from this stage about, in Acts 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 42, we get a picture of what the early church looked like. So we had Jesus, then the apostles, and then all of this time that many of us don't really know what the heck happened. So what did this look like? What were those who were following Jesus really about? What did they do? And in verse 42, we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Not just prayer, but the prayers. It's a quite different reading to say they devoted themselves to prayer, this abstract idea, this thing that I'm supposed to do in the morning, perhaps at a meal or at night. It's a practice that I'm supposed to do as a Christian versus they devoted themselves to the prayers. Then we ask, well, what prayers? What prayers were they reading? What prayers were they praying, were they devoted to? And we're not told precisely in Acts, but we are sure that they prayed the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms. So when we pray the Psalms, we're continuing this 3,000-year-old tradition that Jesus and the apostles and the early church prayed. So our goal this morning is to pray through Psalms 51. It's not to express how we feel. That's not the point of prayer formation. Rather, we pray the Psalms to learn what they express and what they feel. Lament and praise, hope and faith, probably doubt too. It's in praying the Psalms that we learn to express this wide range of human emotion in a way that's healthy and whole, all the while being guided to Jesus in the kingdom. So, friends, as we pray Psalm 51 this morning, my hope is that we would pay attention to the words of God in Scripture so that we might hear the voice of the divine now. Psalm 51 from the message. Generous in love, God give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. You're the one I've violated and you've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of my evil. You have all of the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then, conceive a new true life. Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me in to foot tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. 
God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week out of the chaos of my life. Don't throw me in the trash or fail to breathe holiness inside of me. Bring me back from the gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so that, they, so that the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence. God, my salvation, God, and I'll sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God, and I'll let loose with your praise. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance means nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem's broken down walls. Then you'll get real worship from us. Acts of worship, small and large, including all of the bowls they can heave onto your altar. Psalm 51. So friends, what was this psalm a response to? What story does the psalm tell? It is a story of a leader, a spiritual leader, abusing his power. It is a story of a man using a woman. It is a story of an affair. It is the story of rape. It is a story of shame, shame that lingers, shame that leads to more sin. It is a story of pain. It is a story of telling the truth despite the pain. It is a story of long healing. It is a story of terrible news. The story that I'm talking about is the one of David and Bathsheba, recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I wanna read you this story from our scriptures, sentence by sentence. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rahab. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon. David rose from his couch and was walking about the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. So David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. This is a difficult scene to read. I imagine it's even more difficult for all of us, any of us, to engage with. And perhaps even more difficult or perhaps even more outlandish and maybe even enraging is that there's this subtitle in our scriptures that reads this. Psalm 51, a David psalm, after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet about the affair with Bathsheba. An affair? Do we really think that Bathsheba had much choice to tell her king, to tell the king no? Perhaps like me, you're familiar with another version of verse four in Psalms 51, and it reads like this. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And surely we can see that David's actions, that David's sins, aren't just against God and God alone. So where do we go? Where is it that this prayer is taking us exactly, Mark? What is it that Psalm 51 is inviting us 
to feel. First, we're being invited to see the abused and the abuser. We're being invited to feel angry. We're being invited to feel shame, not to fix it away. Toni Morrison, a late author, in an interview talking about a rape scene in which she wrote, says this. Shame, it's not a hard word. It is a hard word. Not guilt, which is, yeah, it was horrible and I'm sorry. Shame is something else. It's deep and it may last. And at this point, I don't know exactly what you're feeling as you're sitting there, but I know where I'm at standing here and how I felt writing this. My next question was, how is it that Psalm 51 guides us towards Jesus and the kingdom? And as I was writing the sermon, I decided to write it in movements as maybe opposed to an outline. The first movement was titled Beginning, and it was Otuma's poem. The second was A Greeting and a Prayer, and so on. We now find ourselves in the sixth movement, which I called Feeling and Learning. And where I asked two questions, the one I just asked. What is it that Psalm 51 is inviting us to feel? And this last question, how is it that Psalm 51 is guiding us towards Jesus and the kingdom? Truth be told, I didn't have very much under this second question for a while. It's not because I don't think that Psalm 51 faithfully guides us to Jesus or the kingdom, but it's because of how difficult these emotions are to actually feel. And yet perhaps the temptation is to just rush by them to church them away, and we're not supposed to. Let's not rush past them. I titled this sermon, Beloved, in part to give a second nod to Toni Morris and her title in the novel, Beloved, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1988, but also because I think this is where the psalm guides us. It guides us to ask this question, which again, I've been challenged by friends and I've been somehow navigating this question in whatever the words come to be in my head or my heart. Where's the good news? Where's the good news? Is there good news? And I hope wherever you're at in your life, and I know it's a Sunday morning and we leave here and we do our real life stuff, right? Monday through Saturday. But maybe you're asking that same question for you. Is there good news for me? And if there is in this story, it must certainly be for both the sinner and the one sinned against, for both the abused and the abuser. Or is it really good news? Can they both really be beloved? Can we all really be beloved? And sometimes I hear different facets of the Christian gospel, and I have these moments. There's these type of moments where I'll be walking downtown with a friend and we'll be laughing and telling stories and talking about life and the question, hey, how are you, always seems to come up. And then my friend says something and, and I literally stop. And it doesn't feel as dramatic as maybe it feels in this moment, but my friend asks a question and I'm smirking all of a sudden. And I'm not smirking because I'm happy. I'm smirking because I have no idea how to respond. Similarly, maybe you'll see like a, a horror movie and you laugh because your body has no idea what to do with what you've just seen or heard or whatever. And I think to myself, no, my friend's just trying to be nice. He doesn't, he doesn't mean that. He's just, it's, it's flattery. There's no way that that's true. That's too good to be true. 
It's the same type of moments where I'll risk, I'll take this risk with Devin, my wife, and I'll decide to tell her the whole truth no matter how painful it is. And then I'm stunned because of her response to me. And I'll think, there's no way that's true. That's too good to be true. What is it that my friend said that day? What is it that my wife did? My friend asked me a question. He said, what if the entire narrative of scripture is God saying, we're good. You and I, yeah, we're good. And I thought to myself, no way. That would, that would almost mean, that, that, that would be like as if God actually liked me. No way. My wife, what did she do? She hugged me. She hugged me through all of the tears, through all of the snot. Both of our hearts were absolutely shattered. But she wouldn't let me go. There's no way I was going anywhere. I sent Psalm 51, verse 10, to some friends. In other versions, verse 10 reads like this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Maybe you've heard it. And I simply sent that out to my friends and I said, what does this mean to you? And man, was it awesome to hear what God was doing in their lives and what they had to say back. And so I asked, what does this mean to you, to a friend? And they said, it means the prodigal son coming home. If you've been around, you, you know that we've preached that sermon a lot. I've preached that sermon a lot. I've heard that sermon a lot in Luke 15, the parable. And sometimes that story or perhaps the spirit of God or something outside of myself would move me to think, that's not true. That's too good to be true. But friends, it's one thing to hear good news. It's one thing to hear that God likes you, that God loves you, that God is always waiting for you. He's always sprinting after you. He's always ready to wrap you in an embrace and kiss you. No snot, no, no tears are gonna scare God. And it doesn't matter the apology that you have written up, just like the prodigal son. And it's an entirely different, different, other than, capital O, other, thing to experience that hug and good news. So this morning, what's the good news? The good news is, despite what you know, despite what you believe, despite what you've experienced in the church, maybe the church has wounded you, despite what you don't believe, grace is real. Grace is real. And where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So let me pray Psalm 51 once more as we approach the sacrament of communion. But this time, I'll read all of us in this prayer. Generous in love, God, give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out our bad records. Scrub away our guilt, soak out our sins in your laundry. We know how bad we've been. Our sins are staring us down. You're the one we've violated and you've seen it all. Seen the full extent of our evil. You have all of the facts before you. Whatever you decide about us is fair. We've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before we were born. What you're after is from the, from what you're after is truth from the inside. Enter us then, conceive in us a new life. Soak us in your laundry and we'll come out clean. Scrub us and we'll have a snow white life. Tune us into foot tapping songs, set these once broken bones dancing. 
Don't look too close for blemishes. Give us a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in us. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos in our lives. Don't throw us out to the trash or fail to breathe holiness in us. Bring us back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in our sails. Give us a job teaching rebels your ways so that the lost can find their way home. Commute our death sentence, God, our salvation, God, and we'll sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton our lips, dear God, we'll let loose with your praise. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. We learned God worship when our pride was shattered. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem's broken down walls. Then you'll get real worship from us. Acts of worship, small and large, including all the bowls that can heave onto your altar. Now, as we've leaned on late Pastor Eugene Peterson to help guide us through this series as he's the author of uh, the message version of what we read, I could not help but remember a small story at his funeral service that I read in an article. And the beautiful words of his son, Leif, this is the following is what was written at his funeral. Leif Peterson revealed that he used to joke with his father and tell him that he only had one sermon and one message. Despite decades of creativity and sharing the Bible with people in new ways, something which he believes to be fairly accurate, it's almost laughable how you fooled them, he says. How for 30 years, year after week and week after week, you made them think that you were saying something new. They thought you were a magician in your long black robe, hiding so much under your ample sleeves, always pulling something fresh and making them think it was just for them. They didn't know how simple it all was. They were blind to your secret. Leif Peterson said that he knew his father's secret, however, as he'd been telling him that secret for 50 years. For 50 years, you would steal into my room at night and whisper it softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless. As the band comes up, I'd like to lead us into communion with a couple of things. Perhaps like me, you get lost in all of this. Perhaps like me, you're not always sure how to respond to whatever it is that God might be saying to you or what's going on inside of you right now. And so if you get lost in the mystery and you don't know what to do, what better way to participate than to meet with the risen Christ at the Lord's table? It's here at the Lord's table where we remember who our God is in the scandal of sharing a meal with God. What's for dinner? God himself. The story goes that Jesus first broke bread and poured wine with his disciples at the Last Supper, signifying his death to come. It was no secret for those who knew Jesus that he would eat with just about anyone. And maybe that's the point, that he would eat with anyone. He saw dignity in all. And yet the breaking of this bread and the pouring of this glass of wine was different. We recall earlier in John chapter six where Jesus says these offensive and perhaps humiliating words. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What are we to do with that? How are we supposed to understand and participate in such a thing and such an embarrassing meal as that? We eat our God? That's absurd. It is. I'm reminded of a theologian who once quite bluntly wrote this. Anything that takes the scandal out of the Lord's Supper is wrong. And so friends, the invitation is yours. 
It's mine and it's ours. Come to the Lord's table. It is the very life through the very death of God that God offers to you here. It's scandalous. It's perhaps embarrassing, but it just might be the good news that we were waiting for. There are gluten-free options on the far end. As you come, it might be easiest for this many of us to come on one aisle, leave through the other. You can dip the cracker in the wine or the juice. And remember, God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.